For those that I haven't met before, my name's Pete. Together with my wife, B, we lead the church here together. We've been married for 18 years. We're about to celebrate our 18th anniversary. We were 13 years old when we got married. It's obviously a, a joke. We were quite young, 24 at the time. But we've been married 18 years. We've got three kids, Ben, Josh, and Olive. In three days' time, I turn 42. Um, so thank you so much. Um, why am I starting with a kind of biographical intro? I want to frame this moment, at least in my life and the life of my family, in the context of a big year for me personally, um, which was 2002. So I want to take you back 20 years. Now you've got to imagine I'm in my early 20s. I'm studying maths and philosophy at the University of Nottingham, bit of a nerd, right? And I'm getting towards my finals and there's some big decisions on the horizon. Decision number one, what do I do with my life? Like, do I take my degree and head into the city and start a career there? Question number two is like, do, do I go into ministry? Like, there were some opportunities to work for the church. Is that something stirring? Question number three, where do I, you know, put down roots? Do I stay in Nottingham? A lot of my uni mates were staying in Nottingham, but there was an opportunity to move south to Watford, where this ministry opportunity was emerging. And there was a fourth decision. It involved love. I'd met this girl called B. She was unbelievable. There's a problem. She was dating someone else at the time. So I thought I needed to do the honorable thing, keep my distance and pray that the relationship fell apart. It says in the scriptures that the Lord honors the prayer of the righteous, right? So I stood back and the relationship fell apart. It was heartbreaking for me to watch it. Um, but was I there to comfort and, and nurture being in a time of distress? You bet I was. So I, you can cry my shoulder. Absolutely. Bring it in. Bring it in. Um, I'm, I'm exaggerating to make the point. Um, but essentially, the question then became, well, what do we do? Like, I'm about to potentially move to Watford. That's a long-distance relationship. They're always challenging. Like, is this a good time to start a relationship? Big decisions, right? Now, you can probably guess what happened that within a year, B and I had got married. We'd moved to Watford. We'd started working for Soul Survivor, began in ministry. We started planning and training towards church planting. And um, we got married. We had kids. 20 years later, here we are at KXC with Ben, Josh, Olive. Um, and that's the story of, of our life of the last 20 years. I was expecting it to land a little bit better in the room. There was, there was a round of applause at the first service, and that felt really encouraging. Anyway, um, why is that important? Every so often, you hit a moment in your life, a season of transition, and the decisions you make in that season of transition have disproportionate impact on your life. Like our story right now can be explained at least in part by some big decisions made in 2002, right? Now, I believe we're entering into a moment, a season of transition as we, you know, build off the back of this horrible couple of years with COVID-19. Some of us are making big decisions about career and relationships and geography. Where do we put down roots and what church do I plug into? Big decisions. And honestly, for many of us, and this might sound like hyperbole, I believe the decisions we make in the next months, the next year maybe, could set the trajectory for the next 5, 10, 20 years years of our life. We're in one of those moments, which is why I want to speak about how to make really good decisions. Now, there's two motivating factors for me teaching on this subject. Number one is the joy it brings when you watch people make great decisions, right? The joy when you see family, friends, your kids make great decisions. It's like, yes, that's amazing. It brings joy. 
I said, I've got three kids. Now, what you do as a parent is early on, you try and teach them about delayed gratification, right? The idea that if you say no to this thing, the immediate and wait, you might experience something better. Rather than spending your money on that tat, what if you actually saved your money and bought something you really wanted? And then you, you tee up environments where they have to make a decision and you're watching like around the corner, seeing how this is going to unfold. And you're like, come on, come on. No, they crashed and burned, right? They chose the path of like immediate gratification. You're like, it's fine, it's fine. I've got time to learn. And then you tee up another moment. You're like, come on, come on. You can do it, you can oh, crash and burn. They chose the path of immediate gratification. And then something beautiful happens one day. And you're watching, you've been coaching. You're like, go on, go on. And you're like, yes, they chose the path of delayed gratification. Normally they're in their late 20s when that happens. But it's a moment of celebration and rejoicing, right? You're kind of coaching them. And when you see them make good decisions, it brings so much to light. Here's the second motivating factor, which is the pain of watching people you love make really bad decisions, right? It, that can be agony, particularly if you've not offered any wisdom or coaching along the way. Here's three options for, for parents or those in leadership roles where you're raising up younger leaders. Number one, you can control your kids or those that you're mentoring. Don't knock it too soon. It does work, right? It works in the short term. But what happens in the long term? When, when the kids become adults, the answer is to, to establish freedom. They need to rebel from their parents. And in that rebellion, more often than not, there's a breakdown of relationship. Controlling parents rarely have good relationships with their kids. It works in the short term. It's disastrous in the long term. What's the second sort of alternative to that? And the answer is you relinquish control. Now, here's the problem with just relinquishing control. If you do it too soon, it can create damage, right? If you give too much freedom to a child when they're not ready, they can hit the button of self-destruct. As a leader, if you give too much responsibility when someone doesn't have the, the maturity to carry that responsibility, they can damage themselves and damage others, like honestly, as I look back at the 10, 11 year story of KXC, there's been moments where I've been trying to raise up leaders. I thought I was being empowering, right? I thought I was relinquishing control, but because I wasn't coaching them along the way, their experience was that I just abandoned them. I gave them too much too soon. So what's the alternative to that? If you don't want to become a controlling leader or parent or to relinquish control too soon, the answer is you coach them. You tell them everything you know about how to make good decisions in life. And then when they're ready, you step back and you hand the reins on and you're like, you're ready. Make some good decisions yourself. This is the first time in 11 years I've ever taught about decision making, which is nuts. And I'm fairly embarrassed by it. But my prayer is that there's some sense of, of this being a moment of coaching at a critical time of transition. How do we make really good decisions that set a really good trajectory for the next 5, 10, 20 years of our lives? So there's going to be three encouragements and five principles. Are you ready? I'm going to ask that one more time because it really didn't feel like you were with me. There's going to be three encouragement, five principles. Are you ready? Amazing. Thank you, St. Michael Stockwell. Really felt your being on board right there. Okay, so here's encouragement number one. Slow down when you're making big decisions. Slow down when you're making big decisions. If you want to make a really good decision, you need to be aware of yourself, aware of the voice of God, and aware of your surroundings. 
when you're traveling at pace, which is the norm in London, you're less aware of yourself, you're less aware of the voice of God, you're less aware of your surroundings, so slow down. This is why this wisdom has been passed on throughout the generations. Don't make massive life decisions when you're in grief. What happens when you're in a cycle of grief? Normally you experience a level of numbness, less aware of self, less aware of where is God in the midst of this, less aware of your surroundings. So, so don't choose your life partner when you're in grief. Don't make massive decisions about your career when you're in grief. If you want to make good decisions, take time slow down. That's encouragement number one. Encouragement number two is learn how to make good decisions. Now, good decision makers, those with the gift of discernment, they make it look like an art form, right? But there really is a science to it. I consider it like jazz. The best jazz musicians, they know all the scales, they know all the rules, and because they know them inside out, they know the perfect opportunity to break the rules and go rogue, be spontaneous, right? But they do the hard work of, of learning the science, the musicality of it all. There is a science to decision-making. We're gonna explore it. This is the wisdom of Aristotle and, and Greek philosophy on the process of formation. Aristotle basically said, you know, applying this to decision-making, if you wanna make good decisions, imitate good decision-makers. Look at those around you, maybe slightly older, more mature. Watch how they make good decisions. Learn from them and then practice, practice, practice. That's how you learn to walk and talk and learn to drive and ride a bike. You watched others, you learn, and then you practice, practice, practice. And if we apply that to decision-making, right, if you learn, if you watch, and then practice, 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 you can get to the point where it's almost second nature to you to make really good decisions. You almost do it instinctively because you've practiced that much. Here's the third bit of uh, encouragement then. Build momentum in making good decisions. Like you can get on a really good roll of making good decisions. It's like one good decision gives birth to another good decision, gives birth to another good decision, right? And then you're on a run. But it's equally true. You can get on a roll of making bad decisions that give birth to another bad decision, give birth to another bad decision, and it spirals out of control. Now, if you're in that camp, here's what you do. Start with one good decision, line in the sand. Go home tonight and get an early night and say no to that kebab like on the way home. That would be one like good decision. Build on it. The following morning, wake up early, have some time with the Lord and then begin to build on these decisions, get into a groove, a momentum of good decisions. So those are the three encouragements. Now let's look at the five principles. We're gonna go through them one by one. Discern the voices, plot the trajectories, name the desires, honor the commitments, notice the movements. Let's unpack them one by one. So number one then, discern the voices. When you're making a big decision in your life, normally there are multiple voices coming at you. A anyone remember physics GCSE? You all look blank, so let me just help you out right now. That when you've got two sources of sound coming at you at the same time, it's going to create interference, which is going to make it really hard to discern what are the different sounds. So when you're making decisions, there are multiple voices coming at you. What you need to do is almost mute some of the channels so you can discern the different voices, starting with the voice of God. What does it say in Scripture? That His Word is a lamp to our feet. 
Now that's a reference to scripture, but more than that, it's a reference to the still small voice of God that leads and directs us. Like I have a very high view of the prophetic because the Bible has a very high view of the prophetic. So let's just, as a kind of case study, look at how the gospel reached beyond Judaism to the non-Jewish world. And, And the answer is a couple of key people had a prophetic vision and acted on the back of it, right? Stepped out in obedience. Let me give you the first guy, Ananias. He basically heard God say to him this prophetic vision, you're to go to Straight Street, you're going to meet a guy called Saul who's on a mission to, to kill Christians and stamp out the faith and you're to preach the gospel to him. Like, that's pretty scary, right? You're, say again, you're telling me to go and preach the gospel to a guy who's killing Christians and trying to stamp out the faith. Are you serious? But he steps out in obedience. Saul comes to faith, which makes sense of his Damascus Road experience. He's renamed Paul. He becomes the primary preacher to the Gentiles. We're here today because Ananias stepped out in obedience off the back of a prophetic vision. That's pretty cool to think about, right? Let's think of the Apostle Peter. It's good to think of him from time to time, right? So a key turning point in the book of Acts, the story of the early church, Acts 10. Again, this is how the gospel reaches beyond the Jewish world to the Gentiles. He has this vision. It's a very complicated vision. We don't have time for it, but he steps out in obedience And he goes to to meet with a guy called Cornelius. They have table fellowship, a Jew and a Gentile, breaking the codes and conventions of the day. And Peter preaches the gospel to him, and the gospel begins to spread throughout the Gentile world. Because Peter had a prophetic vision and stepped out in obedience. You see, again and again in Scripture, you realize people were learning to hear the voice of God because God wants to direct our steps. So discern the voice of the Father. Secondly, discern the voice of the enemy. Because in key threshold moments, when we're making big decisions, you can guarantee the enemy will be be speaking and speaking lies. Energizing fear. Using shame as a tool to pull or push you in a certain direction. Just think about shame for one moment. When you look at the world through the lens of shame, when you look back over your shoulder, The voice that we normally experience, the voice of shame, basically says, if only. It energizes regret. If only I hadn't done that. And if only I hadn't made that horrible decision. If only I hadn't done that. If only. It's deep regret that robs you of peace. Right? But that same lens, the lens of shame, what happens when you look forward when it comes to decision making? It's a different voice now. It's the voice of what ifs. In other words, what if that happens? What if I take on that job and it's too much for me and I'm exposed as a fraud? What if I'll be out of my depth? What if I don't have what it takes to step into X, Y, Z? Like, what if? Like, what if? Right? It's the same voice, but now it's robbing you of possibility. Now, this is my experience as as a pastor. When people are making big decisions because of interference, sometimes people don't know, is it the voice of their father in heaven? Is it the voice of the enemy? And when you ask them, what's what's the voice of your father right now? Sometimes people say, well, I think he's warning me because I I feel this level of fear. And he's basically saying, don't do that because you'll be in over your head and it will be humiliating. And when I hear that tone, that voice, I'm like, nope, that's not the voice of your father. The voice of the Father energizes love, never uses fear as a motivational tool, never uses shame, right? 
So you need to discern what are the different voices. Thirdly, the voice of your parents or authority figures. Sometimes they will offer phenomenal wisdom and advice, but let's just be really honest. Sometimes they're going to offer really bad advice because they've got their agenda and what they would like you to do with your life. So you've got to discern what is the voice of my parent and how is that different to the, the voices that surround me? Next, the voice of peers. That creates pressure. Normally the voice of your peers is, is saying, move with the currents of culture. Do the popular thing. Just name what are the voices of the peers around you. Is that a helpful voice, a voice of wisdom, or is it a distraction? Um, next, the internal voice. What is your internal voice saying? Some of you will be thinking, what, what internal voice? That voice. The voice that just asked that question, what's the internal voice? That, that's the voice. What is your internal voice communicating to you? Listen to it. And finally, the voice of reason. Now, I know that most of us have been shaped by an enlightenment worldview, and we'd expect reason to be at the very top, right? But when it comes to the biggest decisions in my life, the voice of reason will have often have led me away from what God was requiring of me. What, what does Paul say? The Apostle Paul, he says, you know, it's the foolishness of God that sometimes brings shame. What is it? God takes the foolish, let me get this right. God takes the foolish things to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong. Got there in the end. If at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again, right? So sometimes God invites us into something that breaks with reason. But if it's God, we step out in obedience. So reason is an incredible gift, not always a great guide. But you need to listen to it. So discern the different voices. Here's principle number two then. Plot the trajectories. Every so often you want to pause, look back over your shoulder and look at the different decisions you made. How did they lead you to where you are right now? So when we planted KXC, B and I, we were getting ready to plant a church. We'd done the training. We're like, God, send us wherever you want. We'll, we'll go like nearly anywhere. You just need to speak. And then as we were in that, like, wrestling and, and waiting, trying to listen to God, we became aware of different decisions that had led us to the point where we were then. And we're like, we, we were in Watford, but we moved into central London. And when we moved into central London, there was this incredible family called the Saundersons who basically said to us that they were going to be leaving London, moving to Cambridge, but they didn't want to get rid of their house. Like, would B and I consider, this as pre-kids, would, would we consider house-sitting for them in a four-bed house, like five minutes from King's Cross, rent-free for six months? I basically was on this call like, are you serious? And I said, can I think and pray about it? Yes, I've thought and prayed about it. Yes, we, we want to move in. Incredible generosity. Six months became five years rent-free in a four-bed house in, in Islington. And as we were looking at this incredible provision, we're like, maybe this is a stitch-up. Maybe God moved us into King's Cross and over the course of the five years that followed, it broke our heart for the things of King's Cross. Maybe because that, that's because we're meant to plant a church in King's Cross. Right, as you look back at the decisions and, and enjoying the dots, it sets a trajectory often. So plot the trajectory. Here's principle number three. Name the desires of your heart. Now, here's a couple of exercises then. Firstly, name the root of each desire. Name the fruit of each desire. So between the ages of 12 and 20, I dated this girl. It got pretty serious. And some of you are thinking, you dated someone at the age of 12? Yep, I was a stud. It went downhill after that. I, I peaked at the age of 12. Um, but I started dating this girl on and off for eight years. And um, then when I was 20 years old, I was a youth pastor in South Africa. 
Um, we carried on dating. She was doing a gap year with another Christian organization. And when I got back home, I'd heard on the grapevine that she'd been actually seeing another guy whilst we were dating. So I was, I was pretty gutted, but, you know, we met up and she explained that she had actually been seeing this other guy and, and she dumped me. Now, I told my friends it was a mutual decision and that felt like it had integrity because she dumped me and I agreed to be dumped. So there was a level of mutuality in that, in that decision. Um, but I, I was totally gutted. Like I was coming back from South Africa pretty convinced that we were about to get married. Like I, I was really devastated for quite a long period of time. But when I look back at the relationship and, and the desires that drove that relationship, the fruit of those desires weren't pure. It was basically narcissistic, self-serving. It wasn't about loving the other. It was about what we could get from that relationship. Then every two or three years, we'd break up because we didn't like the people we were becoming. But because of codependency, like, okay, let's just go for it again. Um, and then you're back together. And then we would break up because we didn't like who we were becoming. And then we got back together. And that kept happening, right? So the root desires weren't entirely pure. The fruit of the relationship is we both didn't like who we were becoming. And then it broke up um, when I was around 20. Fast forward the clock to when I met B. It was entirely different. When I met B, it wasn't about what I could get from the relationship. It was about her. She, like She was amazing and kind and generous. I'm going to keep going for the podcast because I'll play it to her later. And beautiful and in love with Jesus and inspiration to be around. We both came alive as we fell in love. The root of the desire felt pure. It it wasn't about what I could get from the relationship. It's about what we could give to one another. And the fruit of the relationship is we were both becoming more like Jesus and stepping into God's call upon our life. Entirely different, right? So when you look at your desires, like name the root, name the fruit. Here's the second exercise. Um, consider your desires like soil, the different layers of soil. Now the top layer, the desires you're most aware of are often the dysfunctional, disordered desires. So when someone like me comes along and says, you need to search your desires, most people are like, no thanks, you don't want me to do that. There's some pretty ropey desires in there. There's some pretty dysfunctional desires that I'm not gonna be telling you about, right? So we're aware in our fragility of our most broken desires. So a lot of people, when someone says, you need to search your heart, what are the desires of your heart? You're like, yeah, no, I don't wanna do that. Don't wanna do that. But if you begin to dig through your dysfunctional desires. In other words, dig through the topsoil. What you'll find beneath the dysfunctional desires are your dreams, right? And more than that, the dreams that God has placed there. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Could it be that he's placed his dream, his desire for your life in your heart? I've hidden my word, word of destiny, in your heart, right? So the beauty is buried in the brokenness. The treasure is hidden in the darkness. You've got to start digging. Yes, we're all broken. There's some disordered desires, but beneath that are some dreams. And if you keep digging, if you keep digging, you're gonna find your design, the way God has wired you to be. And when you begin to go with the grain of your wiring, you have huge impact in the world. So Howard Thurman, an American anthropologist, he famously said this, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go and do that. Because what the world needs is people who've come alive. 
Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive. Then go and do that. Because what the world needs is people who've come alive. The wisdom there is that when you operate, you know, with your wiring, with your design, you are at your most impactful in the world. Keep digging below the topsoil, into the dreams. Discover your design. God has put it there, right? So name the desires of your heart. Um, number four then, honor the commitments. God's faithfulness is the foundation of our lives. Our faithfulness is how we build. As Christians, our foundation is God's faithfulness manifest in sending his son to live, die, rise again so that we could experience everlasting life. That's ground zero. That's the foundation. How do we partner with God in the redemption of all things? And we partner with God through our response to his faithfulness. In other words, with our faith. Like I've got to the point now, sort of 11 years into the Kexi story, maybe 20 years into sort of like being in ministry, I'm, I'm no longer mesmerized just by human gifting. That's a bit of a lie. Sometimes I am actually. Um, but on my best days, I'm less mesmerized by human gifting. So when I see young leaders emerge that are unbelievably gifted, I'm just less mesmerized now. Because I know human gifting is a lousy foundation on which to build. And that the younger version of me would have been more mesmerized and more like, yes, let's, let's employ them. Let, let, let's put them in a leadership role and woo, everything will happen. And, and now actually I realize if you want to build something of substance, something that belongs to the kingdom of God, character's everything faithfulness everything, right? You want to build with leaders that when they say yes, they mean it and they're going to show up. You know, the story of KXE is the story of the faithfulness of God. He's been faithful to every single promise and we've built with faithful leaders. And let me just name some um, because they are models to us. So Alice Parker, any people know Alice Parker, anyone? She's amazing. She, someone does, thank you. Um, she's been with KXC for the full 11 years. Now she works with the kids pretty much week in, week out. You'll find her discipling and loving our kids. Now she's a school teacher. If I was a school teacher at the weekend, I wouldn't want anything to do with kids. I'd rather not have anything to do with them during the week, but I definitely wouldn't want anything to do with them at the weekend. But she serving week in, week out, discipling our kids, that's faithfulness, right? Even when it's been boring, she's carried on serving. Neil Day works for the foreign office. Where will you find him Sunday by Sunday? More often than not, he'll be with the kids, discipling, loving the kids. He's got an incredibly deep voice. He'll be telling them about Jesus in an incredibly deep voice, which just makes everything a bit more profound. Like, he's an inspiration. These are incredibly gifted leaders, but what marks them out is their faithfulness. Think of someone like Iona Lebwidge. She's been Kirksey for 11 years. I, I can't think of many moments in that 11 years where she hasn't been leading a hub. Think of that, term in, term out, leading a hub. Like people coming and going, but she's constantly there, loving people, pastoring people, discipling people. Incredible. Think, think of the, the KX Brunch, our community cafe for the street population of King's Cross. Some of the leaders there, Anna Danby and Lindsay Robinson and, and Libby Forrest and Peter Mayle. They've been 10 years, week in, 
we count doing the unglamorous work of frying bacon, making coffee, and demonstrating the love of God to the street population of King's Cross. These guys are heroes in heaven, and they're heroes in the story of KXC. Incredibly gifted leaders, but what marks them out is their faithfulness, right? I've only made two vows in my life. One is to be to love her, cherish her, honor her till death us do part. The second one is a vow to be a priest in the, in the Church of England. I don't make many vows, but I make lots of promises and commitments. And the kind of leader I want to be is that when I say yes, it means yes. Not yes until a better offer comes along. Yes, I'll be there at your party unless I can't be there last minute. Not yes until I get bored. Like, yes. If, if you're surrounded by people, when they say yes, it means yes, you can build something really significant. We build on the foundation of God's faithfulness and we build with our faithfulness. We honour the commitments we make. Final principle then, notice the movements, the internal movements. The movements of the soul, spirit and imagination. Now I'm ripping this off Ignatian spirituality. Um, Ignatius basically said when you're making big decisions, notice the movements of your soul. He basically described this as consolation and desolation. When you're making a big decision between A and B, um, when you consider A, does your soul rise with excitement, hope, joy, possibility, that's consolation, or, or does it sort of begin to fall, a sense of despair and anxiety and hopelessness, that's desolation. Um, one of the wisdom bits from Ignatian spirituality, this is really practical, um, and the, the Ignatian um, group are incredibly practical. They basically say, take a coin, if you've got decision A, decision B, heads, tails, Flick the coin. When it lands, you know, heads or tails or option A, option B, what do you immediately feel in that moment? Because that matters. That might reveal consolation or desolation. So notice the movements of your soul. Secondly, notice the movements of, of the spirit. Now, uh, imagine this is following the purposes of God, right? Now, as you follow the purposes of God, the voice of the Father, the voice of the Spirit will be a voice of gentle affirmation, saying like, well done. Good and faithful servant, that is a cracking decision in line with who I've made you to be. It's a gentle voice of affirmation. Now, when you are following the purposes of God, the voice of the enemy will be a disruptive voice. Don't do that. No, don't do that. Don't make sacrifices for the sake of the kingdom of God. Put yourself first. No, 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 don't go in that direction. Church will let you down. It will end up messily. It will be a, a kind of jarring voice, a disruptive voice, right? But, this is Ignatian spirituality again. When you're moving in this direction, away from the purposes of God, the gentle voice of affirmation will be the voice of the enemy, saying, yes, put yourself first. Yes, pleasure brings life. Yes, go on, do it. You deserve it. It will be a little treat. So I got carried away. I got carried away at the first service with that voice as well. It just felt really fun. Um, anyway. Anyway, so the, the voice of the enemy will be that gentle, invitational voice away from the purposes of God. When you're walking away from the Father, the voice of the Spirit will be a jarring, disruptive voice. The voice of conviction. This isn't who you are. You're settling for less than your inheritance. You're settling less um, than the person you've been made to be. It's time to turn around. It's time to repent, right? 
So notice what direction are you heading in and what voice can you hear? And finally, notice the movement of your imagination. What are you daydreaming about? Like, listen to these internal movements. So this is the summary when you're making a big decision. And, and this is going to feel mechanical, right, going through these, this process until it becomes second nature to you to make decisions where you're aware of these things, to, to name or discern the voices, to plot the trajectories. What do the decisions point towards? What are the desires, the key desires of, of your heart? Maybe God's put his dreams, his design in your desires. Honor the commitments that you've made. No Notice the movements of your spirit, soul, and imagination. Like As we do this more and more, I think we could make some cracking decisions led by the Spirit. So let me close with this quote from Scripture. There's so much Scripture that brings so much hope when it comes to moments of decision-making. Right, one of my favourite ones, Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He'll make your path straight. What a gift of a verse, a promise in moments of, of key decision-making. What about Psalm 37, which says, the Lord directs the steps of the one who delights in him. What's our task? To delight in God, to seek, to discern what he's doing. And then he will direct our steps. But this is my favorite one. Psalm 32, verse eight. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. God has an opinion, by the way, about your life and the decisions you're making. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. How incredible is that? That's not like big brother, like I'm watching, I'm watching. That's not the voice of the father. That's the weird voice that I've made up. Like his loving eye is on you like a loving parent saying, come on, I'm the voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Like delight in me, I'll order each step and I will lead you towards abundance. Isn't that what we want? To step more fully into the purpose of God for our lives.